It's so good to see you all out this evening. We celebrate on this particular evening uh, the birth of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came approximately 2,018 years ago, give or take. He came as a man, yet was indeed fully God. He came, though, as a man to experience something which, as deity, he could never have experienced. He came in order to die on the cross, in order to make atonement for our sins, that we may have forgiveness in his name by faith in what he has accomplished for us on the cross. The Gospel of John introduces the coming of Christ in a rather unique way, different than any of the other Gospels. John begins to tell us of the birth, the coming of Christ in this way. In John 1, verse 1, the Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Actually, in the Greek, to emphasize this, the the order is a little bit different. It actually says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word to show that the Word and God are the same, one and the same. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse 5, this profound statement, this, this conclusion to this prologue, this introduction in the Gospel of John, John says, The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A number of years ago, I had opportunity to uh, explore Carlsbad Natural Caverns. It's one of the largest caves in North America. It's located in the Guadalupe Mountain Range in southeastern New Mexico. A shout out to my friends from New Mexico who are with us this evening. Actually, I think it was with them, with Kyla, in fact, that I toured these these uh, caves, enormous underground caverns that uh, extend more than a thousand feet below the surface. Uh, and once you get down to the bottom of these caves, they, they do this thing where they, they like to freak you out and they flip all the lights off so that you can't see anything. It is so dark, you hold your hand right in front of your face, within an inch of your face, and you can't even see your hand. It is so utterly pitch black down in the bottom of this cave. You can hear the sounds of people shuffling their feet uncomfortably around you, and the darkness is so thick and so absolute and so complete that it's incredibly uncomfortable. You could not see anything, and you'd strain looking up at the ceiling where in the evening time, at night, naturally you'd have some sort of stars or a moon perhaps. The, the inclination to just begin looking everywhere for some ray, some speck, some flicker of light is overwhelming. And as we stood there in this cave, he let us stand for a few seconds. It must have been 20 or 30 seconds before he clicked on his flashlight. And that little single bulb shone into that darkness with a brilliance that if you were to see that small flashlight at any other time, you wouldn't consider it to be all that brilliant. But in that particular moment, it was. However, these caves are so long that as this particular ranger began to move away from us with his flashlight, it became apparent that within this large, dark cavern, if that flashlight moved far enough away, and if 
the ranger stood in front of the flashlight in just such a way, we would lose the light. That as that light moved further away and at a farther distance, because that light was limited in its power and tempered in the amount of light that it could actually give off, it appeared within this large cavern that the darkness at a certain distance could conceal the light. John makes a statement introducing the light which we know to be the birth, the coming of Jesus Christ. And his statement here in verse 5 is, the light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. That is the conclusion to his introduction. It is a profound statement of victory that as Christ has come, he has shined into this world of darkness. And no matter how severe, no matter how corrupt, no matter how all-consuming the darkness might be, it will never overcome this light which has shined among us. We must ask ourselves this question, what is this light? In order to introduce us to the light, John starts off by saying nothing about light. Instead, he talks about a word. The introduction to this gospel echoes what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible begins with the story of creation and says, In the beginning, God spoke and said, Let there be. And there was. John, echoing what he sees in Genesis chapter 1, says, In the beginning. But He doesn't talk about God speaking. He talks about the word that was in the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the same way that light pierces out into the darkness, John wants you to understand that there is a word that shatters the silence. Before there was day, before there was night, before there was a world, before there were people, vegetation, plants, moving things on the face of the earth, before there was any of this, obviously there was God. And John wants you to understand that with God, there was a word. He goes on to say, and this word was with God and the word was God, or God was the word. That's a profound statement. You and I do, in fact, use words. We have lungs. We can take air into our lungs. We can compress that air in our lungs. We speak forth. It flows over our vocal cords. Our our muscles in our neck and in our mouth move and contract in such a way as to shape that air into a particular sound. It will then emit from our mouth and travel across the air, emitting a sound wave, reaching out and hitting someone else's ears, which God has given us. We will hear that sound in our ears and our ears will convert that through a series of uh, an eardrum and a series of nerve endings will convert that sound into something that we can receive in our soul such that I can speak to you and you can hear me and I am able and capable because of what God has given us of sharing my heart with you. Before there was any air, before there was any medium across which you and I might speak to each other, The Bible says, before any of that, there was a word. The God of the universe spoke forth this word. Indeed, this word is referred to not only as being God, but as being 
with God in the beginning. John wants us to understand that this word, this second person of the Trinity, this Jesus, he is God's revelation to you and me. Indeed, within the first chapter here, he's going to go on to say no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. The author of the book of Hebrews begins his, uh, his letter to the Hebrews in Jerusalem by saying, in previous days, God spoke to our forefathers through dreams and visions and by various means, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so John, talking about this light that overcomes the darkness, this light which cannot be overcome by any darkness, introduces us to a word spoken by God, this word that is God, this Jesus. It says he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Jesus operating in obedience to the will of the Father, was active in creating the heavens and the earth, the universe, you and me. It was done by the will of the Father through the agency of Jesus. And so it is that when the world falls into darkness... When Adam and Eve rebel against the Father, when all mankind plunges into sin and estrangement from a relationship with the Father, that the Word resolved in obedience to the will of the Father to come forth from the Father in order to bring life. That's the next statement in verse 4. In him, in Christ, was life. And the light, the, the life was the light of men. We have Genesis, and we also have here in this particular gospel a very subtle reference to another light, a light that comes from the book of Exodus, as Moses, having fled from Egypt, having found himself wandering in the wilderness, one day is watching over his flocks of goats and sheep and whatnot, encounters there in Exodus chapter 3 a bush that is emitting a light. It's on fire. It's burning. But the strange thing about this particular bush is that even though it was on fire, the fire was not consuming the bush. Enthralled by this sight, Moses turns aside to take a closer look, and as he approaches the bush, from the fire comes this voice. Take off your sandals, for Moses, you are standing on holy ground. And as Moses asks, who are you? What is this? The response comes forth, I am that I am. Echyeh, asher, echyeh, in the Hebrew. And he will say to Moses, go and speak to my people and tell them that they are to be free and they are to come into the wilderness to worship me. And Moses' question to 
I am that I am. When I go and I speak to my people, who do I say sent me? And his response is, say that I am has sent you. And of course, Moses takes that first person verb of being, and when he speaks to the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, rather than saying it in the first person, I am has sent me, he changes it to the third person form of the verb. He is who he is has sent me. In Hebrew, Yahweh, Asher Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord encountered Moses at the burning bush. And what we understand from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, as the fire is burning, the bush is never consumed because the fire is not dependent upon the bush for its source of light. We say that the fire burns, but it does not burn out because as a symbol of God, it shows forth his nature, which has no destruction within it. Its very energy is not produced by any consumption of the bush, It isn't consumed by its own activity. We find here in the burning bush a symbol of a being whose existence derives its law and its source from within itself, from within himself. He alone is the one who can say, I am that I am. Because the law of his nature, the foundation of his being, the only conditions of his existence being, as it were, are enclosed within the limits of his own nature. You and I have to say to each other when we speak of who we are that we are what we have become. We've gone to school, we've gone to university, we've earned degrees, and now we are educated. Or we've gone to work, and we have bad backs and calloused hands as a result of the choices we've made. Or we say that which we were born. Some of us can claim to be born from European descent. Some of us from First Nations descent. Some of us, some lucky few of us from Texas origins. (laughs) We can go on to say that we are what circumstances have made us. But Jesus, Jesus says, I am that I am. All other creatures are links. This is the nail from which we all hang. All other being, all other existence is derived from God and therefore limited and therefore changing as a result of living. But Jesus is underived, absolute, self-dependent, and therefore he is eternal. Because we live, we die. The process by which we live is the process which is slowly consuming our lives. In living, the process is going on of which death is the end, but God lives forevermore. He is a light that does not depend on anyone or anything for the energy by which he shines. 
He is the light that does not burn out. His resources are inexhaustible. His power always unwearied. He needs no rest in order to recuperate any energy from exerting himself. His gifts never diminish the store from which they come. He gives and he is never any the poorer for having given to us. He works and he is never weary. He operates always unspent. He loves and he loves forever. And through the ages, we learn in the burning bush that the light shines on. And here, John says to us, in Christ, in the word, is life. It is the source of all existence. It is the fountainhead of all happiness. It is the place where forgiveness is found. And he says, in Christ is the life. And that life is the light of you and me. It is the light of men. Christmas, ironically, there's no evidence to suggest that Christ was even remotely born anywhere around December 25th in the middle of the winter, but we do celebrate his birth when the days are shortest and the nights are longest, at least for those of us in the northern hemisphere. We celebrate the light in the middle of the darkest part of the year. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay once entitled Meditations in a Woodshed. Not quite as dark as being in Carlsbad natural caverns a thousand feet underground, but in this essay he describes standing in a dark tool shed amongst all of his gardening equipment. And there was a crack in the roof of the shed and a beam of light cut across that shed. And from within the shed he could see the light beam and he could see the few instruments, the rakes and and the cutters and, and a few odds and ends that were near the light. But as he stepped into that beam of light, rather than looking at the beam of light, C.S. Lewis describes looking along the beam of light. And he uses this profound expression, whereas he was in a dark tool shed looking at a beam of light, once he looked along the beam, the tool shed disappeared and he saw brilliant sunshine and leaves and, and trees and sky. Looking at the beam of light versus looking along the beam of light, Lewis concludes, are two very different things. And what John is saying to you and me is that as Christ has come into the world, we see a great light as a result of the fact that he is no ordinary man, but he is God, he emits a light which is infinite and eternal and can never be consumed no matter how great the darkness. You and I are blessed to be able to look at that light. But the greatest blessing remains only for those who will not merely look at the light, but will gaze along its beam and find salvation in Jesus. John makes this statement. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The reason Christ has come as a light is that those who would truly look at him as he is would be transformed by him. That we would be reconciled with the Father through him. That one day, as C.S. Lewis has written in his Chronicles of Narnia, there would be a great thaw. And as Christ returns to this earth, we would no longer know the heartache of sin. We would no longer know the pain of disease and death, but we would taste a new birth of life, a resurrection of our souls and our bodies from an eternal winter. Now we would be with each other, with Christ and the Father forever. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's the reason Christ has come. I'd like to invite John Dykstra and Pastor Ryan to join me up at the front. They're going to hand out a bunch of candles. We ask that only the adults, those individuals 16 years of age and older, take a candle. This is not for the little ones in the room. And here in just a few minutes, we're going to light these candles as we sing our last song. You guys can go ahead and hand them out. I'd like to invite the worship team to join us up at the front. And as we sing these last few songs, worshiping Christ, our King, I'd invite you to consider as you hold these candles, as you gaze at this light, understand there's a difference between looking at the light of Christ versus beholding Him as your Savior. 